Commence primary ignition. Depend greatly on our own point of view. You must unlearn what you have learned. I am looking forward to completing your training. Welcome to Coruscant Community College, a new podcast that focuses on studying Star Wars as text. I'm Craig Dickinson. And I'm Matt Leader. Today on the show, we'll begin a series of in-depth examinations of the Star Wars films with our deconstruction of Star Wars Episode Three: Revenge of the Sith. So just like we did with Phantom Menace and Attack of the Clones, we're going to be breaking down this movie by focusing on the aspects we covered in Season 1 and sharing our general thoughts on the film and its place in the larger Star Wars canon. And I do want to just give a special thanks to anybody who joined us because you heard about our participation in Star Wars Podcast Day 2021. Uh, We're honored to take part and hope that you support all the great podcasts that are involved in that. So we'll go ahead and jump in and talk about what we noticed in cinematography. Matt, you want to lead off with that? Yeah. So one of the biggest things that stood out to me was the use of shadows and lighting in general. And I felt like this was a big improvement over the first two films, episode one and episode two. And there's a couple moments that stood out to me in particular Padme hiding in the shadows when Anakin and Obi-Wan return to Coruscant for the first time is just obviously symbolic of hiding their relationship from the Senate and from the Jedi Council. Um, And then later on when Anakin is in the, I was about to say throne room, but it's not really a throne room yet. It's in Palpatine's office uh, right after killing Mace Windu. And you see this great shadow over half of Anakin's face and one one half is still lit, one half is is dark, and it makes me also think of Kylo in The Force Awakens. And there's some great lighting work done with Kylo on the bridge with Han Solo as well. What are your, some of your thoughts? Yeah, no, those are great. You know, I I love the beginning of this film so much. I knew we talked a little bit about that um, before we recorded, but just that you have the pair of starfighters. We know, we can tell pretty much right away who that's going to be. And then they're small, which is kind of interesting because usually, you know, the most important thing is the biggest thing, but they do that, you know, just to show you the scale of the battle, which I think is really interesting. And they're kind of just swallowed up by, by this whole thing. And, but you have this great sweeping shot, you know, camera work wise that follows, it's like one unbroken shot um, from very small all the way up into the cockpit. Uh, for Anakin. So that's just a really cool, there's a lot of interesting and unique things in this film, cinematography wise, as opposed to some of the other Star Wars movies that Lucas did. I love that they're going through the cockpit, the point of view through the cockpit quite a bit through the battle. Some of the other shots that I really enjoyed uh, with this one is the really extreme wide shot. This is some things that always stuck out to me, the extreme wide shot with with Obi-Wan boarding, stowing away Padme's ship, Mm -hmm. where you almost can't see him. And I always enjoy when filmmakers reward you for paying attention, you know, and you're like, oh, look, I think there's something happening there. Uh, And that's just a really cool, cool shot. I did notice too, you know, you mentioned about the shadows and that that was a great point. I mean, I didn't actually have it on my list, so I'm glad you did. Uh, That there seemed to be a lot more like medium or American shots 
which it looked like they were focusing on performance a lot more in this one. Like the the emotional beats in this story are so important that they want to, even during the action, there's just a lot more focus on body language and facial expressions. And you're like, we've gotten to know these characters and now it's like they're fully on display. And so I was like, I've just got to notice, wow, we've kind of zoomed in quite a bit more, you know, and kind of wondering about the reasons for that. But I just figured, you know, we're, we're really concerned with capturing these performances. Some really cool composition geometrically uh, for me in this one too. I noticed a lot more triangles this time through. I had not watched it for that purpose before, but especially when they go into the observation platform, the beginning, you can see as they enter the room that that Palpatine is very much the apex of the triangle. And that hap- the, the triangle rotates a couple of times where he's not necessarily, but for the most part, he kind of is like the center of what's happening, which I think is really cool. You also see that when Dooku enters the room, that he's at the apex. And it's almost like it's triangular in the way that it's set, where he's up at the up at the top, and then the staircase kind of trickles down on the sides. So some really interesting things to look for uh, if you're looking for, for geometric stuff there. For me, I also wanted to talk about color. And my favorite thing is is where Anakin has the two lightsabers crossed in front of Dooku. You know, it's very much like, am I in the Jedi path of blue or the Sith path of red? Uh, the symbolism there is is just really cool. Um, but I think that's all I had for cinematography. Did you have anything else you wanted to mention? Yeah, so I think in general, this is probably the most adventurous of the three films is in terms of cinematography, um, especially with the camera work and some of the composition as far as, like you're you mentioning, the like the American shot. One complaint that I have about episode two that I actually forgot to mention was in that final lightsaber fight between Dooku and Anakin, it's probably my least favorite because so much of it is shot so closely to Anakin and Dooku that you can't really see what's going on. And I understand that they they want to get some emotion. Like you don't want the shots all being so far away that you can't see how the characters are reacting. But I think they went overboard with it. And what I noticed with this film in particular with Anakin and Obi-Wan's fight, even though it's extremely emotional and it's very intense, they do a great job of mixing up the different kinds of shots they use so that you get to see their faces sometimes. You also get to see you know, their body movements and their surroundings. And so I just overall, this film is a big step forward for me in terms of cinematography. Just the action of the camera moving around in that first shot of the of the movie is amazing. I think it's it's probably I would say that it's the best opening of any Star Wars movie if you discount the classic factor of right. A New Hope, right? Because you can't beat classics; they're classics for a reason. But I do think this is probably, in my opinion, probably the best one. I mean, just it's so interesting when they come in. And it looks like they're just flying in. Like in episode two, when you have the Naboo uh, shuttle come in and the starfighters, it's just a shot of the the starships coming down to Coruscant. That's it. And there's action afterward. But this one, it's, you know, kind of playing with that a little bit where they come around. I don't want to call it the Star Destroyer because I know that's not what it is. Right. But uh, they come around that ship and there's just this massive battle in the background. And we never get to see something like that. I don't think in any other Star Wars film, aside from maybe Rise of Skywalker, we get something close to that size. Yeah, you know, it's uh, a story I've heard about that shot, or that scene, I should say, rather, is that it has everything but the kitchen sink, 
And so they actually put a kitchen sink in it. Like one of the things, and I, I think it's on one of the commentaries where if you look for it, you can see there's a very small piece of debris that goes flying into one of the ships. And like, there's the kitchen sink. Cause it literally <laughs> has, it has everything right. That like they didn't pull, they, they literally pulled out all the stops out on this one. So I also had that for kind of transitioning into sound that it's the film starts with the force theme, mm-hmm. but it's a very militaristic force theme. Yeah. Which you know, is, is not a good thing. You know, we've, we see in, you know, in Phantom Menace where Qui-Gon says, you know, or actually it's, it, well, Qui-Gon says, I can't fight a war for you. And even in Attack of the Clones, Mace Windu says we're, we're keepers of the peace, not soldiers. And they've fully transitioned into generals. It's interesting to see that juxtaposition between what should be kind of this mystical, peaceful thing into, no, we're full on fighting a war and in how the force is being used in this case. Also, just the effects of the sound effects of the Jedi starfighters going through there is just, it's a great, I mean, the whole scene is so good. I mean, I don't want to spend the whole show talking about that one, that one scene, <laughs> but it is, it is such a great scene. I just, a couple of light motifs I wanted to talk about briefly that you get to hear Yoda's theme for the first time in the prequels, which is cool when he's taken off from Kashyyyk. And then I love the end, how it kind of, as it, as it shows Leia being dropped off on Alderaan, that you hear her theme. And then, of course, the film wraps with the main title, which is also Luke's theme. And just that that last scene with the transitions between the leitmotifs is, is just beautiful. Um, you know, the I mentioned earlier that every movie has its signature song. And for me, it's the one that plays during the opening, especially, of Anakin and Obi-Wan's fight. And I tried looking up the name, and as far as I know, it's just called Anakin versus Obi-Wan. Or Obi Wan versus Anakin. It's one of the two. Yeah, I've uh, heard I've heard Battle of the Heroes for that one too. Oh, so that 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 sounds familiar. I think that might be what we're yeah what we're talking about. And it's just a stunning piece of music. And I think that you know George Lucas did really a pretty fantastic job at setting this scene where it feels like two equals going at each other. And you have no, I mean, you do, we know that Obi-Wan's going to live and we of course know that Anakin's going to live, but it feels like this tug of war that you're not really sure what's going to happen in the moment of it. It's just a very exciting scene. And that, that music, when it, when it kicks in after that kind of emotional moment with Padme, it's one of my favorite Star Wars moments, just made more intense by that music there. Yeah, and then it you know it bleeds in and out of of duel of the fates in there too. Yeah. And again, we have that you know, it's if you look at it as it's all Anakin's fate that's being decided through these three through these three films. It's it's really cool just to hear it again at you know when the stakes are that much higher. Yeah, um, and then you hear it with you know Yoda's fighting Palpatine as well. They're obviously, the fate of the galaxy is it's is in the at balance. Stake. Yeah. Right. Did you have anything for vocal sounds? The big thing I had for for that one was the sand people in the background, which I thought was just kind of a cool little drop where Palpatine reminds Anakin about, you know, after, after he kills Dooku, he's kind of like, you know, you, was, you remember what you told me about your, your mom and the sand people. It's like, it's natural to want revenge. And then you get to hear that cool little drop of, oh yeah, from the last film, this is what happened. Yeah. It's like a, an echo of a memory. Yeah. I think it's pretty effective. The only thing that really uh, stood out to me was Palpatine's voice change after fighting Mace. And I feel like it even changes a third time where right after, you know, we have that transformation of Palpatine into Sidious, there's something about his voice that feels mechanical 
it feels robotic to me in a way. It just feels very artificial. And, you know, when he comes back to the Senate, he sounds more kind of like the classic Palpatine. And I'm not sure if that was intentional or if I'm mishearing it, but it's, I mean, there's definitely a shift in his voice. And, you know, perhaps that's kind of him playing to the politicians, you know, where he's kind of using his reptilian voice with with Vader. But that was just an interesting transition for me. And it's cool. uh, something I actually gave a, a lesson about symbolism uh, earlier this week. And we were talking about weak and strong symbolism and how, you know, basically anything can be a symbol because it just stands for something else. But really strong symbolism changes with the character. So you have Palpatine's voice transforming, you know, that is symbolic of him kind of taking off the mask and revealing who he really is. And who he really is, is this kind of reptilian evil monster. And really, he doesn't have that much, you know, as far as character goes, he doesn't have much like counterbalance. Like Anakin is very good slash bad character, tug of war. Palpatine is pretty much just straight evil. Yeah. I, yeah, I agree. Uh, and, you know, it's interesting, like Vader's was seen originally as like the big bad, but then there's like, who, how bad would the guy have to be who's pulling Vader strings? <laughs> and, and you get to see that. Yeah. He, yeah. He, there is no, there is no conflict in Chief at yeah. all. So let's, let's go ahead and transition into performance. Uh, Cause we kind of already touched on it a little bit. I mean, I thought that the makeup was, was really great for, for Palpatine when he, when he fully oh, yeah. transforms. And it's cool to see that echo of what he looked like in, Return of the Jedi. Uh, and then we've had, you know, discussions about like, is that one, one great thing that kids have, have asked many times is, well, why does that happen to him when Luke gets electrocuted in Return of the Jedi? Why doesn't Luke look like that? And you can have the discussion about, you know, which is his true face, right? And, and obviously that's, it's back to some, you know, back to symbolism that we get to see, like he's been rotten this whole time. So we're kind of getting the full reveal of his true nature. Yeah. But I mean, the performances in this film, we've kind of already talked about it a little bit, but I just thought we're, we're great all around. It's cool to see Anakin and Obi-Wan basically be like brothers in this thing. And they're very self-assured. And you're like, you know, the Clone Wars color some of that too, that you're like, yeah, these guys have been doing this for a while. That opening scene again, when they're just destroying battle droids left and right without even breaking a sweat. And you see them fully in their prime. Uh, they're very self-assured. And even, you know, Padme's pretty self-assured in this one too. She seems comfortable in the role. It just doesn't have a huge part in this one, but I think she's very solid in what she does. She's very believable when you see her, especially when she realizes what's happening with Anakin. There's the scene where she thinks he's he's died. You know, that just, it feels authentic. Natalie Portman obviously is a very good actress. And so it's not surprising that she's pulling this off, but I think the direction in this film is just so much stronger than we've seen so far. I would really tend to agree. I think that I have been a bit more down on the performances in episode one and two. I think overall, there is just a much higher level of performance, like you said, across the board. As far as static acting, you know, with actors who are under emoting, I didn't have anyone written down. You know, there might be little moments here and there, but there was nothing that really stood out to me enough where I felt like I needed to, you know, write it down to remember it. I feel like Obi-Wan still is stealing the the movie with his acting. I think Ewan McGregor is probably the most consistent person throughout the prequels. Padme does a better job, in my opinion. I will say that the love scenes felt melodramatic to me, where it was just cheesy. <laughs> I, I would prefer that over the under 
emoting, the, the static acting that I felt, you know, the coldness that I felt from Padme in episode two in the beginning of the movie, where, you know, I think she does a better job in the love scenes. I don't think they're they're great. I don't think they're fantastic, but I would take cheese over nothing. And Palpatine is also fantastic, although he's so over the top, but I can't I can't hate him. He's 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 amazing. The best line in in the movie, though, has to be from the beginning when Obi-Wan says that uh, Sith Lords are their speciality. I had that right down, too, because <laughs> you were talking about their self-assurance. And it's like they're they are nothing if not self-assured and with good reason. I mean, for Obi-Wan, this is his at least second Sith Lord, I think, officially. Right. Yeah. Maul. If you're yeah. Supposedly killed Maul and then he's facing facing Dooku. Yeah. Um, the great irony of that statement, of course, is that he's talking to a Sith Lord, telling him how good we are at <laughs> handling Sith Lords. Right. Yeah, I, I had I had him down for Ed Sidious down for melodramatic too, but you can't you, you can't you know it's he's clearly doing what he's supposed to be doing. Yeah. Uh, I also had Grievous down for that too. Yeah. Uh, but again, it's ser- serving the same purpose. He is very much supposed to be the the kind of one off mustache twirling villain. Like he's not he's not dynamic. He's very much a flat character, mm-hmm. but he serves his purpose. You know, he he is the supposed big bad that they have to deal with uh, that's new to this film. Uh, Yeah, a lot of great lines in this movie. You know, I love that Anakin says, this is where the fun begins. That's just a cool nod to to Solo from A New Hope. Obi-Wan gets the the second, I have a bad feeling about this. Again, so we know what of the three films, he gets to say it twice. The thing that makes me laugh now uh, after Clone Wars is Anakin saying, my powers have doubled since the last time we met. And I'm like, what, since like last week? Yeah. Because they meet so many times in Clone Wars. And, you know, it's interesting that they went, they did a really good job in Clone Wars, never having Anakin meet Grievous. So you get that moment where, you know, he legitimately hasn't met him. And, you know, I love that line too. He was like, you're shorter than I expected. And he's fully cocky, but deservedly so. So they did that, but it's interesting that they have, he and Dooku have met many times. And so that line doesn't quite hold up in this case. And if you've just seen the films, yeah, that makes sense. And of course, that's original original context. But uh, the last couple I had was, you know, Yoda's line about training yourself to let go of everything you fear to lose and whether or not that's, you know, legitimate. Is that something that's possible? Is a discussion point that we have in class a lot. And of course, you know, you get this speech about Darth Plagueis. That's another classic. A couple of the things I noticed facial expression wise that just stood out to me is Dooku's face when, when Palpatine tells Anakin to kill him. Where he just looks and he's just like, what do you mean? <laughs> like, what is happening here? He looks at him with just that shock and betrayal, which is is interesting. You know, later, Anakin, after he kills him, has this similar look where he's kind of just confused about what he's done. Like, he's the one that did it, but he's, you can see that he's completely conflicted at this point. But, uh, you know, he's all in black, so we know he's on his way. So speaking of casting, you know, he's, he's proto-Vader. And then, uh, yeah, we talked about Sheev. And then the last thing I had was, and of course, it's, I mean, it's a movie and it's, it's a mythic movie. But you know how you have Padme's clothing designed to hide her pregnancy that we're supposed to kind of buy that, you know, she's eight months pregnant. With twins. With twins. <laughs> <laughs> right. With twins uh, on the down low. Yeah. So, um, but I mean, they did, a, it's a good, they do a good job with like the flowing, the flowing gowns and whatnot. And she's hiding behind pillars in shadows apparently. So she's going to be okay. Uh, anything else for performance that you want to touch on before we get to the end? I don't think so. Do you want to move to setting and design? 
Yeah. What'd you have for that? So for me, what's always fun is that I think this is the film with the most locations. I had, I would, you know, when we watch Rogue One, I may have to do a, a count. There's quite a few locations in Rogue One too, but tons of planets. Right. Yeah. yeah, I think so. You know, especially in that montage where Order 66 happens, they're just like one scene of several films, like uh, several planets, rather like Megito and Catanamoidia where um, Plo Koon dies. But it's cool you get to see uh, Kashyyyk for the first time uh, outside of the holiday special, uh, which, you know, then they've used some of the, um, that as a reference point too, which is fun. Uh, we could see, I mean, Mustafar's great. Alderaan's beautiful. Again, I mean, almost everything's CGI in this film as well, location-wise, other than Tunisia at the end. I think that might be the only real world location. But my favorite thing uh, with the setting design is the observation platform and how much at the beginning and how much it echoes the throne room on Death Star 2. Because mm-hmm. I remember, again, after seeing Phantom Menace, that this was going to be a rhyming thing. Okay, well, that's like the Death Star. This is like him fighting Vader on Cloud City. I'm like, there's going to be a scene that's going to be like Luke facing Vader. And to get to see that early in the film, it's like, okay, yes, this is doing everything I want it to do. And so that was just kind of the the culmination of, yes, you promised this, now I'm going to get it. And so that's just one of my favorite favorite sets. And then I just had for props um, that the, the Japur snippet shows up again. Oh, yeah, at the funeral. It shows up at the funeral. Uh, also in when he starts to tell her about the dream that she's going to die. And I just yeah. thought it was kind of a cool nod to, to Phantom Menace, this small, insignificant thing that shows up to be pretty big. And the, yeah, the funeral thing is really the big thing where it's like, even at the end, you know, she still loves him. She still has that hope for him. For me, uh, with setting and design, you know, my, my big thing was the juxtaposition at the end of the film when Anakin is being transformed into Darth Vader and it cuts back and forth to Padme giving birth to Luke and Leia. I, I think, see, like that, that's kind of what I mean by, because, you know, while some of that is setting design, it's also a little bit of cinematography where I think that's the most interesting use where, you know, one life is ending. In a way, Vader's life is beginning and it's setting into motion the rest of the Star Wars, you know, the Skywalker saga. I have to say that I, I think it's stupid that Padme dies of a broken heart. <laughs> I, I don't like that. And it, it it just feels, I don't know, it just doesn't feel right to me. And I, I do kind of wish that Anakin had had killed Padme. And I know that sounds terrible, but I feel like it makes it more tragic in a way if he is the direct cause of her death rather than a sort of indirect, which I feel dying of the broken heart is. And to me, it just seems, it feels out of character, I guess, if I had to pin it down to something. Because, you know, especially in episode two, we see Padme as this fiery go-getter. She's she's going to get the job done. You know, yeah, she's a queen. Yeah, she's a senator. But she's not afraid to get her hands dirty and do the work. And in the Clone Wars cartoon, we see even more of that side of her. And I just don't feel like dying of a broken heart is who Padme is. I could see her trusting Anakin too much and getting hurt from Anakin's anger. And that to me reads more in character to Padme than that. But I also like what they're trying to do by connecting those two through juxtaposition, the the two medical rooms that they're in. You know, it, it's it's kind of the polar opposites. It's very much the, the blue and the red as far as the light and the dark side, uh, flipping back and forth between those two things. 
Yeah, it's you know I'm glad that you you mentioned that because I had that under camera work and I just I forgot it. I missed yeah. it somehow. Uh, that you have that extreme high angle on that. I tend to think that there's more going on than she dies of broken heart. And I've heard that people have said that before too. It doesn't, you know, cause it actually says she's, she's lost the will to live. Right? right. That's, that's what it is. And yeah, I mean, it's, she's gone through trauma clearly what I like, and it's clearly, it's just a theory, but I think that you can probably justify it even a little bit more after rise of Skywalker is that what could be happening is that Palpatine is sucking her life force and putting it into Anakin. I've heard, you know, he's influencing the midichlorians in that way, which kind of, it's set up, you know, we talk about, is it, can you read it, get it from the text? Well, you know, in the, in the Darth Plagueis speech, they talk about manipulating the midichlorians to create life and stop death and all that stuff. And he promised it, even though he didn't, you know, and then later recanted in a little bit. But I like, I like that theory that through the force, you know, he, he is being, and you have, because you have the symbolism already of he's being reborn as she's dying. So, you know, we could take it one step further and say that, you know, he is literally taking her life force as Palpatine, taking it from Padme and putting it into Vader. You know, and I, I think part, I mean, this is an ambiguous part of the story. And, you know, when ambiguity is used intentionally, I think you're meant to read into it, uh, especially into the symbolism. And so I think because it's left ambiguous, I think it's totally valid to read that into it. Uh, you know, connected with the Plagueis speech and, you know, what we learn later from Rise of Skywalker. I think that is a a very possible explanation. I, I feel like I would have liked a little bit stronger indication that that might, might be happening or, you know, a more uh, didactic, like more explicit, yes, <laughs> Sidious is doing this, you know. He, he is using Anakin very much. You know, he's he's killing Padme to keep his apprentice alive so that he can use him. And I, I think that's something that Palpatine would do. So I, I definitely can see that. I think on the surface, it doesn't quite get there for me, but I, I, I could see how it, that could make sense and could work for other people. Yeah, I'd love to hear what our listeners have to think uh, about that because there's those are just a couple of, of theories. So, you know, it, and I love the fact that, you know, he said it's ambiguous and that's great. That I like I like Star Wars with, when it's ambiguous and that you can kind of fill in your own headcanon, you know, as it were, as long as it's not, you know, contradicting anything else. It's, it's just as legitimate as, as anything else. So, you know, we're moving on to characters and really the only thing I had for this one was just that, you know, Grievous is kind of this precursor to Vader. I thought that was fun that he, you know, he's a cyborg and it doesn't quite work. He's got a breathing problem as well. <laughs> um, that's kind of fun. And we've kind of already talked about Anakin being just supremely confident. I love the scene. I keep talking about the beginning. I know, but I just love that so much. <laughs> um, where you have the two of them, he and Obi-Wan approaching Grievous's ship and they both get attacked by the droids. And, the buzz uh, droids. Yeah. And uh, Obi-Wan's like, no, nothing too fancy. And then Anakin's like, all right, sh turn off the thrusters and do a whole bunch of crazy. It's like they're complete opposites in a lot of ways. They complement each other. Um, and, if, you know, they've done tons of these things in, in battles left and right. So it's really cool that they really do. They kind of fill in each other's gaps. Um, they're such a complementary piece to each other. Uh, but that's pretty much all I had for characters. Did you have anything additionally that stuck out to you that we haven't already talked about? I want to agree with you about that complementary relationship that they have you know the main characters that we are talking about i feel like we've kind of covered already 
either in this episode or previous episodes, and I don't feel like the characters have changed that much. And one thing that stood out to me, though, and I wasn't really sure where to stick this, so I kind of had it under characters, was I feel like there are a couple uh, tonal whiplashes, especially early in the movie. And what I mean by that is, you know, when you're talking about tone, it's kind of, I guess in my mind, it's kind of how serious the movie is taking itself and and how how the director wants the movie to be portrayed. You take something like Saving Private Ryan that's got a very serious tone. It's meant to be taken seriously. Star Wars is not meant to be taken that seriously. But I feel like you have the uh, strong opening, which we both absolutely love because we keep talking about it. And, you know, you have this massive battle that we've we've never really seen something that visually busy with just chaos. And then, you you know, you have Obi-Wan and Anakin and they're on this mission to save Palpatine. What what gets me is how goofy the battle droids are. <laughs> Everything up until that point, I'm I'm fine with and I'm 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 running with. But for me, it it doesn't feel like Anakin or Obi Wan are in any danger at all when they're fighting the battle droids. Mm-hmm. And when you know Obi Wan's flying in a ship, and there's that one moment when his like his his windshield like ice is over and he can't see. That feels chaotic and that feels intense. The later fight between those two feels feels intense and it's that tug of war. But when R2-D2 is burning up the super battle droids in his oil, it's kind of like, that. it it just doesn't, that feels much more of a kid's cartoon. That feels more like the Clone Wars cartoon than, you know, a slightly more serious and intense movie that they're going for. I mean, we have Anakin killing younglings in this movie, which is as about tonally dark as you get in Star Wars. And then you have the the silly, goofy scene of the battle droids. And I like the goofiness in the the cartoon, the Clone Wars cartoon. I love the battle droids, just silliness. But it also feels like a little bit of a betrayal where in episode one, in particular, part of the reason that makes the battle droids so intimidating is that they are robots. They have no emotion. They have no connection like the clones might have. They're not people. <laughs> and so if they're programmed to kill you, they will. And I just get no sense of danger from them from, from that moment where I feel like the rest of the movie is trying to say, no, this is a dark film. This is kind of Empire Strikes Back level of darkness. This is not good for our heroes. That just felt really off to me. Yeah, that's interesting, and and I mean that could just be you know I'm trying I'm, I'm thinking of of reasons. You know, I feel like you know we have this push and pull you and I with, all right, here's the hard part, here's the thing I struggle with, and then I'm like, all right, let me show you why you're wrong, and why it's okay, <laughs> and I have a reason to justify it, and so I'm kind of like, is there one? And and I and I do I have one. I could I could say you know that, and I, I could be reading into it, but that's fine. It's you know it's it's ambiguous that. You know, the droids were never really an issue, and especially not now, because all they have to do is flip a switch and turn them off. You know, they're not yeah, they're not really the threat that they're presented. This whole thing is a ruse. And so you're actually getting to see, yeah, these these droids are not that big a deal. This is a completely contrived manufactured threat. So you shouldn't be afraid of them. But I do see your point. I do I do see that they are kind of intimidating in in which is kind of funny. You know, Phantom Menace is a is a lighter film. And yet the droids are much more imposing. There's a level of gravitas to them in the first movie that there's not in this one. 
and, and I actually do see your point because I think we even brought this up in our episode about episode one, where Anakin and Obi-Wan just mow through the battle droids like nothing. They cut through them like butter. But I was thinking more specifically of the Gungan scene where you see hundreds and thousands of them. And that's the overwhelming intimidation. One by itself is nothing, but it's because there's an army of battle droids out to kill you. I also think briefly of the Mandalorian, and I'm struggling to remember, was there a super battle droid in the Mandalorian? Yeah, we got to see live action. Yeah, And I feel like if, and that was, was much more intimidating. That's where I, I feel like Star Wars as a whole, as you know, as a canon, it feels like a, a, a different tone that they take in, at different moments, whether the battle droids are going to be scary or intimidating or goofy. And, and so that's just something that stood out to me where, you know, rewatching these movies all in a row again, I felt more of that, that tonal imbalance than perhaps if I'm just watching one of them on a random Sunday afternoon. Sure. So I don't want to spend too much time on this, um, <laughs> but again, counterpoint. So what's interesting, I think, is the context. Context is everything, right? So you have those shots from Phantom Menace, and then those are in the trailer too. They're like, wow, mm-hmm. this is, you see the tanks coming over and the sound and, and whatnot. Against Gungans, yeah, big deal. Against a small child like Din Djarin was, big deal. Against seasoned Jedi, not such a big deal. So I don't know. It's awesome. I'd love to hear again what, what do people think about the battle droids and, and the tonal shifts. Because, yeah, for the most part, it's a pretty serious film. But, yeah, R2-D2 just wasting those two <laughs> super battle droids yeah. handily and then kind of whistling away like he was never in any danger. Yeah. So moving on to – I'm assuming we're ready to move on. We'll move on oh, to, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, to the galaxy, the Force. We kind of hit on a little bit that there's – the midichlorians come back in this film. They took a break in Attack of the Clones, and we hear about the ability to manipulate them. We had not heard that yet. That's So that's new. Whether or not they can create life, transfer life force, which we do later get confirmation in both Mandalorian and Rise of Skywalker, that it is possible to transfer life force from one to another. And so there's, we talked about the theory already about how Padme dies and Anakin's reborn. Is that poss- being a possibility? But the big thing for me in this one is just seeing, and we saw it in A New Hope. But chronologically, this is the first time where a Jedi, where you see Ben Kenobi feeling the destruction of Alderaan, and you see Yoda very viscerally feeling the deaths of Jedi all over the galaxy. You see him drop his cane. You see him putting his hand on his chest. And, uh, you know, that's that's heavy. That's heavy stuff to be able to be that intimately tied to all those people and to have felt the deaths is a thing that is new, but it's also it's kind of, it's heavy. Now, do you know if we have any kind of uh, confirmation that the the Jedi as generals, do they feel the deaths of their clone troopers that they lead? You know, I, I would think there'd be stuff in Clone Wars about that. And it's it's been a little while since I've, I, I'm due for a rewatch. But I would think they would because they're living beings. So, you know, they're connected to the Force as much as, as anything else, as any other regular humans would be. So I kind of wonder, the reason I bring that up is because of what you said about, uh, you know, Yoda very viscerally feeling the death of all the Jedi. You know, I wonder if if the Jedi felt the deaths of all those clone troopers during the war and like what kind of trauma that would leave on them. You know, that kind of death and destruction on that scale, because I forget how long, but I I think someone in, in one of the prequel movies said that there hadn't been, you know, an army of the Republic for a thousand years or something like that. So, you know, most likely the death and destruction that they're 
potentially could feel would be nothing on the scale of of what the Clone Wars would bring. Yeah, I mean, because I mean, you have the, the clones that are essentially you know built to be bred to be disposable. You know, you know they're dying by the thousands. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. I've not really heard. I mean, that's a, that's a show unto itself. Honestly, <laughs> I've not really heard. I've not really heard a lot of discussion about that. About what kind of what kind of trauma, what kind of PTSD the Jedi's would be experiencing. I just use Jedi's like it's plural. Jedi is the plural <laughs> of Jedi. Uh, would be experiencing having, you know, felt all those losses. I mean, what would that do to you? We talk about losing the ability to to use the force. Maybe it's maybe it's tied to that, you know, that you become numb to it because you had to mm-hmm. desensi- be desensitized to it. Yeah. I think that's a really interesting theory. You know, and it just kind of popped into my head. Just because, you know, we've talked quite a bit, actually, about how the Jedi are not what they're supposed to be. From episode one up to episode three, that, you know, the Jedi Order is a organization that's that's crumbling, just like the Republic that they're in. Yeah. Yeah, we may have to come back and revisit that because I think there's there's a lot there. The last couple things I had with that are the, uh, I love that the, the ARC-170 is very much the precursor to the X-Wing. Uh, we get to see both of those in, in the opening battle. Hmm, let's talk about that some more. Yeah, you see like a, a proto X-Wing. And then, you know, I love that the Jedi Interceptors, the new ones, are very much proto TIE fighters in the fact that they have this, you know, they have the same kind of cockpit. And then when they open up the wings on the side, it's like, yeah, th- you were seeing what you thought you were seeing. This is, it's like they're flying TIE fighters and there's X-Wings uh, during the prequel era. Anything else on that before we get down to Hero's Journey? Nothing that we haven't already talked about, so yeah. I, I think I'm ready to move move on. Okay. So I've heard it say, and I, I think it was, was Brian Young I heard it from, that it's essentially an inverted hero's journey for Anakin in a lot of ways. And so, because uh, it's his journey to becoming a villain. You know, it's the, it's the, it's the villain's journey, uh, especially in this film. I mean, it's been happening the whole time. I believe that the seeds have been there uh, since, since Phantom Menace with his attachments and those kinds of things and his inability to let go. And so what I tried to do with this one, I was like, can I, can I see a hero's journey just in this film, but taken on the dark, on the dark way. Uh, and so I do see, this is what I had. So you have the call, the call to adventure, refusal and acceptance is all happening at the beginning where he kills Dooku. Right? He has to choose which path he's going to take. We talked earlier about the blue and the red lightsabers. And he chooses the red path, right? It's kind of a choose your own adventure thing at this point, you know, because this is, and that's the beautiful thing about this thing rhyming is that you see, you know, you see Luke and Jedi faced with the same choice about whether or not he kills Vader and then Palpatine blows it by saying, yes, he's good, you know, all this stuff. And then Luke brings himself back. Anakin doesn't bring himself back. He, he goes down that path. And so you, then we have this, this road of trials where essentially it's what is he going to do with the premonitions about Padme's death. He's faced with, with this big thing and how and he almost tells Yoda, kind of does. He doesn't really tell Palpatine, but he's getting answers to his questions without asking them. And then the biggest test, I think, is what does he do between Sheev and Mace? And when, you know, he has to choose which side again, ultimately, which side am I going to take the Jedi path or am I going to let let Palpatine live because I think I need him. So when he makes that choice, that that's essentially his, where he leaves the Jedi order. That's a symbolic death to me. 
And so you have him become a Sith. We're starting the apotheosis. And ultimately, I think that happens, you know, after Mustafar, he's reborn in the suit, new identity. Um, you have the outside help of Palpatine. And then he is fully reborn as you'll get that last shot of him, or he's more machine than man. What do you think about that? That I totally... Uh, I, 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 no, I think that's a, I think it's a very, very interesting reading of it. I think it's fantastic. I, I think especially the, the rebirth of Anakin as Darth Vader at the end is kind of a cool linchpin to transition from one trilogy to the next. Well, thanks. I tried. I tried to stretch, stretch this this pattern into this, you know, because I'd heard, oh, hmm, but I hadn't heard him explain it, and so I was like, well, maybe I can try and uh, see if it fits the paradigm. I also think that like the hero's journey doesn't have to be exact either. No, totally and, not. And so I, you know, I think there's definitely, I think there's definitely elements of the hero's journey within it. And so I think you're you're on the right path of of reading hero's journey into the story, even if it's missing some parts of it. I think there's enough there that I think that's a very valid reading. So what do you think about his turn then? Do you fall into the camp of, yeah, I can totally see this. This seems legitimate or wow. He turned really fast. How do you, how do you <laughs> feel about that? Cause there's, you know, there's two camps out there. You know, I buy the reasoning that's given because I look at Shmi and I look at how Anakin feels about her and how he is, he's tied to her in this way that breeds possessive jealousy in, in a way. And what I mean by that is like he's driven to revenge. So the loss of Shmi in episode two drives him to do something horrible. And like, that's pretty bad. And so, you know, what does he do after that? He turns all of his attention to Padme. And when he thinks he's going to lose Padme, it makes sense that he would do something drastic to try and prevent the death of a loved one. So I, I totally buy that. I do think that the buildup is weak, and I do think that the turn was a little too fast. And this ties into what I feel is the weakness of this trilogy is, is episode one in the sense that it doesn't fully connect and it doesn't that time we don't have as much time given to Anakin and Padme's relationship that I think we could have used because I think I think the building blocks are there and it makes sense to me like what he did uh, for Anakin and that's where like the Clone Wars cartoon comes in and fills in so much of that relationship with with depth and richness and there's a part of me that kind of wishes we had gotten that in the movie form where the beginning of episode two is the beginning of our trilogy. And the lynch, you know, the, the the middle of this trilogy is Anakin's marriage. And we get a little bit more of him and the Jedi on that war path because I feel like that's an aspect that affected the Jedi more than they probably let on. And Anakin in particular, you know, what's the saying? If the only tool you have is a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. Right. And he's, you know, growing up, he is a general. <laughs> in his prime, he is a warrior. He's not a peacekeeper. He's not a poet. He's not a you know a meditation guru guru like Qui-Gon or something. He kills. He uses violence to solve his problems. Uh, and you know, he never really gets over that possessiveness where if I can't have this, you're gonna pay. You know, that kind of revengeful quality. So I feel like the skeleton is there. I do think the actual turn is too quick. It's not bad. 
it's not horrible, but I do think it's too quick where he, you know, one moment he's, he's like, do I help Mace? Do I, you know, help Palpatine? And then he's bowing down to him. Yeah, I'm Darth Vader. That's all done. <laughs> yeah. So I'm kind of torn on it. How about you? No, again, we just keep going back around the same. <laughs> See, I, I, I buy it because I think that he, he reacted emotionally. He was totally, you know, at, at a loss about what he's going to do. Am I going to, I need her. Like I, you, I need him. So I need you just, just to back off. He's, you know, he's telling Mace, I need him. And then he reacts and he does this. And I think this is the moment when, you know, he says a few moments later, he says, now you're, you're Lord Vader, right? He had christens him. But I think that's the moment when he's Vader, when he makes that choice, when he does that. And, and I've heard, I think it was Kyle Newman that said, this makes sense because when you see him choose to save Luke and kill Palpatine and Jedi, that's when he becomes Anakin again. And so you have that beautiful rhyming again. But what I see with this is when he allows Palpatine to kill Mace, that there's no turning back. I see resignation. I see, well, I'm down this path. <laughs> there's no way, no way back for me. Yeah. You know, I've, I put all my eggs in the Sith basket. I have to just do this now. You know, he's gotten, you know, the question of whether or not he actually loved Padme. I tend to think no, because I don't think he really knows what that is. I think he wanted to possess her. Yeah. At, at all costs. And so having that be that selfish that he was just like, I'm going to make this happen. And if I have to do this, then I'll make this happen. And then he has this slippery slope of, well, I guess I'll go have to kill the Jedi now because they lied to me. And, you know, Palpatine had done all this, this seeding of they don't really trust you. And then, you know, there's evidence that they don't. I tend to think that he, he was kind of boxed in a corner and felt like he had to just proceed to do this. And if you, if you really want to go this way, you can and say, well, the dark side had him, <laughs> you know, because there is this element, this is mystical element this, you know, once the dark side grabs you, like it's going to dominate your destiny. And he's already let it in multiple times, you know, with the sand people with Dooku earlier in this film and that he's just kind of, he's locked in. He may not have full control over what he's doing. I, it, yeah. So, I mean, that's, that's kind of a figurative interpretation. It's not a literal interpretation of what's happening. Um, but that's kind of where I, I look at him just going, well, this is the choice I made. I have to live with it now. Yeah. And I, I guess I could probably more accurately say that I feel that the the payoff was all right, but the setup could have been stronger. There was setup. I just felt like it could have been better. Could have, you know, it could have been a stronger setup. The one scene that I always come back to uh, is the Clone Wars episode with Clovis and how possessive Anakin is uh, when it seems like Padme may be attracted to Clovis or or there may be something there between them. And, and that scene right there really shows to me that what Anakin is experiencing is, is possessiveness, kind of like what you said, and not love. And that leads me to buy into, I, I feel like that's really good setup for his eventual turn. Yeah, you know, it makes me wonder if, if it had been possible for us to have seen episode two, all of Clone Wars, Mm-hmm. And then Revenge of the Sith, you know, how would your, would your impressions be? Would it, well, yeah, that just makes sense. I think it would. I think it'd be better. Yeah. 
You know, that's, that's the thing. So when you have kids, make them do that. Make them wait. <laughs> Can we watch the next film? No, we have no. seven seasons of Clone Wars. <laughs> and if you give me I'll any back talk, you're going to watch the Gendy <laughs> micro series too. Read this comic book. Go. And all the, all the novels in between. Yeah, just for context. <laughs> for context. <laughs> so... You know, if, if you're ready to move on, I, I kind of wonder what your final thoughts are on the movie in the wider Star Wars canon. And also because we're at the end of our first trilogy, you know, how the, the Revenge of the Sith and the whole trilogy kind of feels as a, you know, as a whole unit. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is I love this film. This is this is one of my favorite Star Wars films. It, I, I'm, I, mean, I like Empire and I like Jedi is actually my favorite film. But when I remember when this first came out, I was like, I was kind of blown away by how much I really liked this film because I, I, I'm a Star Wars fan. So I enjoyed Phantom Menace and I enjoyed Attack of the Clones. But this was like, wow, this is a whole other level. Uh, you know, with the way that we talked a little bit about how it leads right up into the original trilogy, it dovetails so nicely uh, that you don't need anything else in the middle. The performances being what they are, the, the battle scenes, it's, you know, getting to see pretty much we got everything in this film you could possibly want that the prequels had promised, right? I mean, it was 16 years in between. We've been hearing, yeah, maybe we're going to get this new Star Wars film. Maybe it's, we're going to get the prequels eventually. This is the film that people wanted. This is the centerpiece of the prequels. And, you know, I've heard it said that this is the one that he, that Lucas kind of had. I had this one kind of locked and loaded. And the other ones were kind of broad strokes that he filled in. And I think we've kind of talked a little bit about that and how, you know, those kind of suffer from that. But again, you know, people want people want Vader. People love Vader. You know, that's what they want. So, uh, you know, I think, I still think it's a great film. I think visually it's amazing. I think it has some of the best music. It has definitely some of the best cinematography of all of the Star Wars films. The fight scene at the end, you know, that's another thing. We The duel, cap, capital T, capital D, between he and Obi-Wan. And uh, yeah, this is just a film. I, I would watch this film by itself, out of context. Usually I watch the Star Wars film, like, like start at the beginning, going to plow through, but this is one I would just put on uh, just to watch because I enjoy it so much. What about you? Yeah, I, I think that this is the crown jewel of the prequels. As much as I've been criticizing this movie, I do think it is the best of the prequel films. Narratively, performance-wise, cinematography, you know, I think episode one has more background and lore as far as the galaxy, because, you know, that's one of the aspects that we look at. I feel like there's more in episode one in terms of that, but it's all kind of used in episode three. Metachlorians, you have some interesting world building on top of that. Uh, overall, this is this is usually, you know, my rankings of Star Wars film change probably every time you ask me, but this is usually up there. I wouldn't say probably top three, but it's in my top half. And I'll have to I'll have to wait and see, you know, what it is this next time, because I think we're going to do a ranking episode at some point after we've watched them all. That's an idea. And I, I always I always feel that, like, my opinions change after watching all of the movies in a row in like short, short order, because you have more context of seeing them all, you know, kind of stacked next to each other. So overall, I, I enjoyed it a lot more than episode one or episode two. It'll be really interesting, I think, taking a look as at the prequels as a whole compared to the sequels, because those are a lot more controversial. And I think that there's some interesting contrast between the two. 
and how they work together and how they fit with everything that's going on. Um, and that's kind of the fun of doing, you know, talking about these movies like this, because there are so many interconnecting threads that I'm kind of anxious to get to those movies so we can talk about what happened in these movies right. and how it like, how the threads get tied later on. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, we talked about the fact that there's, there were broad strokes for, you know, the original, for the prequel trilogy. We kind of knew where the story was going to go. Right. As opposed to the sequel trilogy, which we know was being created kind of like, you know, building an airplane while they're flying it. Right. So, yeah. And, and we talk about tonal shifts and, and the weaknesses and strengths of that as well. When we get there, that'll be a, that's a good, good discussion down the road. Any other final thoughts on, on revenge of the Sith? Best title of the prequel trilogy. Yeah. You know, it's, and again, the, the rhyming with return of the Jedi and the whole revenge of the Jedi thing, which we'll get to. Yeah. I mean, this was one, I, I think this is just the one that delivered. You know, from the beginning, the first first couple of prequel films was like, okay, that's what they're calling it. Okay, what's it going to be about? This was like, yep, okay, this is it. Yeah, this is the one you're waiting for. Here's the battle scene from the beginning. Again, we're talking about that, but <laughs> you know, it's like there's there's I don't know. It has everything that you'd want. You know, there might be yeah. some things that you didn't as well, but I think it it packs in everything. It packs in the the twins for crying out loud. It packs in the Death Star. Um, briefly at the end, you know, other than a little orphan Han Solo, which was at one point, you know, going to show up in there. It's got everything to set up the original trilogy that you could possibly want. I mean, even Chewie's in this. We didn't even talk about that. Chewie's in this. Yeah. So a little cameo. Yeah. Awesome. So thanks everybody. Thank you so much for listening, especially those of you that are new joining us for Star Wars Podcast Day 2021. Uh, please check out our teaching resources at coruscantcc.podbean.com. If you'd like to connect with us, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, Tumblr, and Instagram at coruscantccpod, or you can email us at c3podfeedback at gmail.com. And if you haven't yet, please join our Facebook group, the CCC Common Room. It's a safe place to debate, collaborate, and ruminate on all things Star Wars teaching and film. You can find that at facebook.com slash groups slash C3 Common Room. Coruscant Community College. Because the Imperial Academy isn't for everyone. This podcast is not endorsed by the Walt Disney Company or Lucasfilm Limited. It is intended for entertainment, educational, and informational purposes only. All names, sounds, and any other Star Wars-related items are registered trademarks and or copyrights of Disney and their respective trademark and copyright holders. The official Star Wars website can be found at www.starwars.com. All original content of this podcast is the intellectual property of Coruscant Community College unless otherwise indicated. Nothing more will I teach you today. You've taken your first step into a larger world. We will watch your career with great interest. Coruscant Community College, because the Imperial Academy isn't for everyone.